Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. So on next Monday, on uh, July 11th, it will signify the 32nd anniversary uh, since the day that kicked off the Oka crisis. Can we get an applause for that? That's pretty cool. Now, uh, I'm almost a little bit annoyed because 32 isn't as cool of a number as like 30 or 35, but 32, 32 years, that's still a pretty significant date in Canadian history. Now, well, uh, it wasn't the first. Oka is still the biggest and most significant uh, armed blockade by Indigenous people uh, to defend traditional land. It was the first military confrontation on Canadian soil uh, since the Northwest Rebellion in 1885, and it's left behind what I think is a rich tradition of militancy that the Indigenous movement today continues to pull from. Yeah, back up. Right. In the past few years, uh, we've seen a pretty significant in uptick uh, in the Indigenous struggle. Awareness of Indigenous issues is at an all-time high, and more and more Canadians are putting themselves on the side of Indigenous people. Uh, we've seen a number of high-profile occupations just in the past few years alone, uh, like the ones on uh, the Onestone Camp in British Columbia and 1492 Lambeck Lane in Ontario. And, uh, you know, needless to say, these are very progressive developments. They signify a growing realization that the Canadian government uh, doesn't have any interest in solving the real issues of Indigenous people and that working class and poor natives need to rely on their own strength. But if we want these movements to succeed, uh, then we need to study past attempts and, you know, uncover the lessons baked within them. And if, uh, you know, like me, you aspire towards overthrowing the Canadian state and abolishing capitalism, which those should be your goals, they're good goals to have, then, uh, you know, the Oka crisis is baked full of these sorts of important lessons. Now, the, the Oka crisis, you know, it's, it's, it's widely recognized and it's widely known, but I, I find that it's not too widely understood. There haven't been really many attempts to, to, to analyze it. Now, Oka isn't just worth studying because it's interesting and inspiring, because, but because it highlights some very important practical lessons on things like the tasks of the indigenous movement and the nature of the Canadian state. Now, as with anywhere else in Canada, uh, the, the history of Oka is marked by oppression and betrayal. The land that we now know today as Oka, Quebec, was originally formed as a settlement to be held in common uh, between French Jesuits and uh, indigenous groups who already lived in the region. But the Jesuits went behind the backs of the native population and appealed to the King of France to grant them uh, sole authority on the land, which he granted. Now the Jesuits formed, a, they assumed a paternalistic control over the indigenous people who lived in Oka. The Jesuits had total ownership of the land and all its resources, which meant that First Nations people needed permission before they could hunt, fish, farm, or, or build houses anywhere on that land. Uh, indigenous people were even frequently arrested for chopping down firewood uh, during the cold winter months. Now these tensions led to a number of early struggles in the 18th and 19th centuries. During the 1860s and the 1870s, the Mohawk chief Joseph uh, Onoskenrat uh, became a local hero in his stands against the Jesuits. He emboldened the Mohawks to protest their conditions and he repeatedly petitioned the federal governments uh, for title to land. He led a mass conversion of Christian Mohawks from Catholicism to uh, Protestantism in protest of the French. And in 1869, he marched right to the center of town axe in hand, 
and chop down the biggest elm tree in the city as a direct challenge to the authority of the Jesuits. Now this all eventually culminated in him and a group of Mohawks threatening an armed uprising against the Jesuits, after which he was uh, criminalized and had to live on the run for a number of years. Now in 1934, the Jesuits sold off their land to the newly formed municipal government of Oka. Now this happened without any participation of any First Nation, and the town made no acknowledgement of indigenous rights to land. To this day, to this day, no level of government has made any agreement with the Mohawks in Oka over land. The Oka question remains completely unresolved. Now, this was the situation for, for countless First Nations who were disposed of rights to the land that they had been living on for, for all of living memory. Beginning in 1973, as a way to kind of divert this anger, the federal government uh, did formally recognize indigenous title to land and they set up channels for indigenous communities to file for recognition. But this process has been rotten since the very beginning. The land claim process is complicated, sluggish, and doesn't provide any sort of promise that things are gonna be handled. By the 1990s, uh, there are already some claims that have been in the process for more than 15 years. Now today, this hasn't really gotten any better. Today, the federal government is supposed to have a three-year deadline uh, to uh, reply to historical claims filed by First Nations, but a report from a group compiled in BC just a few years ago finds that the government blows past this deadline 65% of the time. And when indigenous communities do actually hear back, they're virtually always denied. You know, for example, take Aganasatake, a Mohawk village located near Oka and the main setting of the Oka crisis. The people in Ganesatake filed dozens of claims throughout the 1970s and 80s that were all denied. They filed a claim in 1975 that was rejected almost immediately because according to the federal government, uh, the Mohawks couldn't claim that they had lived on their land since time immemorial. Now this shows the kind of hypocritical and, and ludicrous standard that the federal government subjects indigenous people to. Now how do you define time immemorial? You know, it's a, it's a vague measurement to begin with, but even ignoring that, the Canadian government hasn't occupied any land since time immemorial, and, and Mohawk people have been living there since before any kind of European settlement. Now, alongside their struggles with government bureaucracy, the Mohawks in Quebec were regularly harassed by police. This involved repeated clashes over fishing and hunting laws that interrupted their traditional ways of life. On top of that, uh, the police would regularly conduct violent raids on indigenous communities for pretty innocuous crimes like unregulated gambling and uh, uh, untaxed tobacco sales. In September of 1989, uh, just under a year before the Oka crisis, uh, 75 police officers raided Ganasatake using riot gear and a helicopter over allegations of illegal bingo games. Now, indigenous communities, understandably, I dropped hand sanitizer. Uh, they understandably have very little trust in either the federal or Quebec government, and many correctly see the police as a racist tool of state repression. Now these factors made some kind of open uh, confrontation between the state and indigenous people just a simple inevitability. Right-wingers and, and bourgeois historians often reproach the Mohawks for you know, taking up arms and causing a little bit of a ruckus, but the reality is that they didn't have any other options. You know, all the legal channels of change that the government set up are total dead ends by design. 
They're not meant to change anything. They're meant to slow down and distract. On top of this, the harassment they received from the police only heated up things further. You know, the people in these communities hated the police and lived in fear of violent raids, and uh, many indigenous people began uh, advocating for the use of arms to defend themselves. Now, when you deny people change for so long, it's, it's only going to be a matter of time before they turn their back on the official institutions of the state and start to take matters into their own hands. Now, former president of the Assembly of First Nations, uh, George Erasmus, foretold this back in 1988. In a warning to the ruling class, he said, Canada, if you do not deal with this generation of leaders and seek peaceful solutions, then we cannot promise that you're going to like the kind of violent political action that we can just about guarantee the next generation is going to bring to you. Now, things came to a head for uh, Ganesetake in 1989, when the Oka Golf Club announced a nine-hole expansion of their private golf course. Now, the original course had already been partially built on a traditional Mohawk cemetery, and the expansion meant clearing down a nearby forest called the Pines, which was uh, uh, you know, held uh, in high respect by the people of uh, Ganesatake. They used the Pines for, for a number of cultural ceremonies, and they put a great deal of effort into keep the forest uh, you know, clean and maintained. Of course, this expansion was approved by the city without any consultation with indigenous people in the region. Mayor uh, Jean Alette, when uh, asked at a town hall meeting whether he had discussed the de development with Ganesatake, uh, he just shrugged his shoulders and said, you know you can't talk to the Indians. Now, the golf course expansion was met with hatred by, by almost everyone in the area, uh, indigenous and non-indigenous alike. Workers in Oka hated the idea of the local government supporting uh, this development for an exclusive, you know, sort of high-class golf club uh, that they weren't going to be allowed in. And environmental activists pointed out that the plans uh, you know, were going to damage the local ecosystem. A petition opposing the expansion circulated through the town and received 900 signatures, which is huge because Oka only had a population of about 3,000 at this time. Now, in March of 1990, a group of Mohawk activists decided to take matters into their own hands. They constructed a barricade on a dirt road that leads into the pines with the intention of blocking off any attempts to begin development. Now, many people involved in the initial barricade had ties to the Mohawk Warrior Society, a sort of a militant nationalist organization who had already been involved in a number of armed standoffs. Uh, and because they're the ones with the most experience, they would uh, quickly become the face of the coming uh, standoff. Now in April, uh, Mayor Ouellette granted an injunction against the blockade, which the Mohawks simply ignored. He granted a second in late June and directly directed the, the police to dismantle the barricades. On July 11th, at around 5 a.m., uh, a fleet of police cars and trucks composed of about 100 police officers uh, were sent into the pines. Uh, they came armed with riot shields and assault rifles. Now, they arrived during the middle of a traditional tobacco ceremony and, without any warning, launched smoke and concussion grenades into the blockade camp. This quickly resulted in a gunfight uh, between the Mohawks and the police. An estimated 93 rounds were shot off in 20 seconds. In the chaos, a police officer was shot and killed. Now, it's actually uh, still not really clear today uh, which side the officer was shot from, uh, but to be honest, this, this doesn't really matter too much. Um, regardless of you know, where the bullet came from, his death would become a chief justification for further repression. 
it's worth noting that uh, there are serious disagreements in the blockade camp uh, over whether or not they should arm themselves. But after this initial police raid, these divisions completely evaporated. Everyone behind the barricades agreed on the need to arm themselves, and even the most vocal in the anti-gun camp uh, found themselves picking up an assault rifle. The police quickly retreated once blood had been shed, but their withdrawal was pretty sloppy. In the confusion, they left behind a number of police vehicles, which the Mohawks used to reinforce the barricade. They could thank them for one thing, right? So, in retaliation for the attack, a group of activists from the nearby Mohawk community of Ganawage uh, seized the Mercier Bridge, which marked a major escalation. Uh, Mercier Bridge, uh, no clue if I'm saying that right, is one of the few routes that connects the nearby city of Chateauguay with uh, Montreal. At the time, it carried 70,000 cars every day. So the police responded by setting up a complete blockade of Ganasatake. They halted all travel in and out of the community and refused to let in food, medicine, and other necessities. So they were totally willing to let people starve and die if it meant actually tearing down the barricades. In just a few hours, the blockade developed into an all-out armed standoff with the communities of Ganasatake uh, and Ganawake on one end and the provincial police of Quebec on the other. Now, one thing that needs to be said uh, before we go any further, is that the blockades were, were clearly triggered by the golf course expansion, uh, but this wasn't the real source of the conflict, right? As a matter of fact, the city canceled the development uh, three days into the standoff, uh, but obviously things didn't just end here, right? The Oka crisis is a classic example of necessity being expressed through accident. Uh, the golf course was, you know, merely a symbolic issue, right? For, for years, the government had trampled all over their rights, this expansion was just the straw that you know, broke the camel's back and, and pushed them into fighting. The protesters wanted much more than just the development to be canceled. Fundamentally, what they wanted was control over their land and control over their own communities. Now, the precise demands that came out of the blockade camp uh, changed a few times over the course of the standoff, but generally, they demanded the removal of police and military from Ganasetake and Ganawake, clemency for everyone involved in the standoff, and for all issues relating to Mohawk sovereignty and land rights to be referred to the International Court of Justice. Now, their main slogan was for, for sovereignty, right? But, uh, you know, what was meant by sovereignty wasn't always clearly defined, and, and there were differing viewpoints from behind the barricades. Even before the standoff, there were some pretty deep ideological divides in the Mohawk movement. But in general, what they wanted was sort of control over the lands they lived on and had historical lanes, uh, claims to, and negotiations with the federal government uh, to define these lands and uh, what control Mohawk communities had over their own affairs. Ellen Gabriel, who is a prominent Mohawk activist and who is considered to be the spokeswoman for the standoff, has written quite strongly about the need to implement the principles of free, prior, and informed consent which is sort of this idea that indigenous communities uh, should have the right to allow or deny any development that would come through their lands. Thank you. Now, I think to any socialist, uh, these are more than reasonable demands, right? Uh, no community should be forced to accept developments that they don't want and they're not going to be uh, benefit from. But from the perspective of the Canadian ruling class, these demands are absolutely unacceptable. Capitalism requires total and unrestricted access to land for things like housing developments and resource expansion. 
uh, free prior and informed consent for any indigenous group would restrict this and therefore restrict profits for the capitalists. Now this is something that has been admitted more or less outright by a number of Canada's ruling elite. The Deputy Minister of Indian Affairs at the time of the crisis, uh, Harry Swain, wrote a book on the standoff, which uh, I really recommend reading if you want to see the sort of contempt that the federal government has for indigenous activists. He wrote that you know, he was on vacation at the time, but if he was there, he would, quote, not in any case have engaged in serious talks on the precondition that Canada and the Mohawks were separate sovereignties. In an address to the House of Commons, then Prime Minister Brian Mulroney uh, said that indigenous self-government, quote, does not and cannot ever mean sovereign independence within Canadian territory. During his time in office, Stephen Harper, boo, right, argued, thank you, argued against free prior informed consent because according to him, uh, indigenous people shouldn't have a veto on uh, economic development. Now, the federal government was quickly forced to negotiate with Mohawk protesters, but these discussions were totally farcical. The government was already dead set against the one thing the protesters wanted, and none of the government officials assigned to negotiate had any mandate to promise anything. Uh, they were just so told to go there and you know, try to convince the Mohawks to take down the barricades. Now, because of this, these negotiations went absolutely nowhere. The government wanted nothing but to crush the Mohawks. To grant any concessions in this context would have sent a dangerous precedent going forward. Government bureaucracy is a really important tool uh, for the ruling class to divert struggle. You know, indigenous people were told for years if, if, they had to, if they had a problem, they had to solve it through the official channels, right? If they had a land claim they want to put forward, you first have to you know, go through your band council and submit it officially to the government and then sit and wait for a reply from Ottawa for you know, potentially a few decades only to be told you know, no. Uh, so by taking more direct action, you know, the Mohawks set a dangerous precedent for ruling class. They set an example for other indigenous people, right? Now the government's contempt for the protesters was reflected clearly in the police's treatment of them. The Mohawks were subjected to human rights abuses throughout the entire crisis. Aside from being denied food and medicine, indigenous people were routinely harassed and beaten by police, um, even if they had nothing to do with the standoff. Uh, one man, uh, Angus J Jacob, was picked up by police on the way to go shopping with his wife, uh, where they you know, took him to an interrogation room and kicked and choked him. His nephew-in-law, uh, Daniel Nicholas, was strapped to a chair and beaten, slapped, and burned with cigarettes uh, by provincial police. Now, the Canadian government went out of its way uh, to cover up these abuses. The police harassed journalists and international observers were routinely forbidden from entering into the barricades. They had to sneak themselves in through, uh, you know, the pines and on boats, right? Supposedly, this democratic country was stopping international observers from being present uh, at a police confrontation. Uh, Flynn uh, Linian, it's a Norwegian name, I don't know how to say that. Um, he was a Norwegian judge and uh, international human rights observer. And he said that the only persons who have treated me in a civilized way in this matter here in Canada are the Mohawks. Now, the standoff in Oka was met with really incredible enthusiasm uh, by indigenous people across the country. A lot of people don't know about this side of the Oka crisis. 
the standoff in Oka inspired uh, Native people from all over the countries uh, to, to take matters into their own hands and hold similar protests in virtually every province at the time. In Winnipeg, there was a rally of hundreds of Native people outside the Manitoba legislature in support of the barricade. In western Quebec, a group of Algonquins occupied an island in Ottawa River. In Nova Scotia, a group of Mi'kmaq activists staged hunger strikes and marches. A group of Ojibwe's from North Ontario blocked a CN railway that passed through their reserve, which caused a losses of $2.6 million every day for CN Rail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to bring it back home, a group of native activists in Alberta threatened to destroy hydro transmission lines if the government attacked the barricades. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot more of these. We can't clap at everyone. Now, these actions were especially popular in BC. Um, many people don't know, but BC has a particularly egregious track record uh, with indigenous land title. I hope one of our BC comrades can intervene on this. I see you shaking your head. Awesome. Uh, up until very recently, they refused to recognize any indigenous title uh, whatsoever, which meant the struggle was particularly sharp here. So by the uh, middle of July, just a couple weeks after the standoff started in Oka, uh, seven ro uh, roads and railways had been blocked off by BC First Nations. BC Rail was experiencing losses of $750,000 every single day throughout the crisis. Yeah. Not only that, but indigenous people flew in, and we got a little image here. Not only that, but indigenous people flew in from all over the country to Oka and helped bolster the barricades. You know, most involved in the standoff came from Quebec, Ontario, New York, uh, the places with the biggest Mohawk populations. But there were indigenous people from virtually every province. Uh, here's, you know, a very famous photo of the standoff. It's called Face to Face. Um, I mean, it might be one of the most popular photos taken in Canadian history, right? Uh, this photo right here, which depicts a, a protester in Oka facing with a Canadian uh, soldier, has become ubiquitous with the Mohawk struggle. What a lot of people don't know is, is that guy isn't even Mohawk. Um, he was an Ojibwe student who flew in all the way from Saskatchewan uh, to support the protest. At the beginning of the school year, too. Right? There's a lot of assignments, I bet. <laughs> no. Now, Oka developed from a small regional dispute into a focal point for the indigenous struggle. It became a symbol for centuries of injustice indigenous people have faced in Canada and sparked a, a real mass movement. But unfortunately, um, it remained mostly isolated from the rest of the country. Now, don't get me wrong, uh, there definitely was some sympathy some general sympathy for the protests from non-Indigenous people in and around Oka. And there were uh, some uh, concrete instances of direct support. There is a protest of 2,000 natives and non-natives in a park outside Oka to so show solidarity. There were clandestine groups of people from Ota Oka and Chateauguay who helped sneak past food um, into the barricades. And there was even one instance I found of a 15-year-old white kid who joined the Mohawks behind the lines. Uh, they called him Blondie. Now, unfortunately, uh, this solidarity didn't develop past uh, momentary instances of support, so there was no real uh, movement by non-Indigenous workers to protect the barricade. And um, this is really due to the inactivity of Canada's labor leadership. Now, in times like these, when an oppressed group fights against the state, it is the responsibility of the larger working class to support them. 
Canada's labor organizations should have mobilized mass demonstrations in support of the Mohawks. They should have pointed out that the politicians that were attacking Native people were the same politicians that were cutting social services and making workers' lives harder. They should have taken advantage of this opportunity to support them and, and strengthen both the indigenous movement and the labor movement. Unfortunately, the labor leaders, uh, the reformist leaders, remained mostly silent. In July, there was a protest of over 2,000 people held in Ottawa in support of the Mohawks. And this protest saw participation in speeches from uh, the Canadian Labor Congress and other unions, which could have served as the basis for you know, greater solidarity. These unions uh, could have and should have extended these protests, and they could have uh, you know, begun initiatives to provide the blockades with food, medicine, and supplies. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, solidarity from the union leadership uh, never moved past these uh, occasional speeches. The federal NDP leader, Audrey McLaughlin, also spoke at the rally and at one point made a big show of uh, donating bread to the blockade camp. But in a total hypocritical turn, she later said that the Quebec premier had the right to call in the armed forces to dismantle the barricades. And, uh, shame, shame, shame. Right? She provided a left cover for this repression. Now, there was a total lack of leadership for the non-Indigenous working class, and this paved the way for reaction. Now, certain backwards and racist elements were enraged by the blockades, and without strong opposition from the labor leadership, uh, these people were able to gain support and organize counter-demonstrations. In Chateauguay, you saw protests of up to 10,000 people where they'd burned down effigies of Mohawk warriors and chanted, damn savages. The main organizer of these protests was a former Quebec police agent, and they were promoted by a popular right-wing radio host. The protests were regularly visited by Chateauguay's MP, Ricardo Lopez, who previously said that uh, indigenous people should be shipped off to Labrador for complaining about land. Now, white supremacists and fascist groups worked openly in the protests, distributing flyers and literature. Gangs of vigilantes roamed the area and tried to chase down and beat any indigenous people they found leaving the barricades to buy food or medicine. Now, had the labor movement supported the blockades, these elements would have been greatly weakened. The labor leadership uh, should have explained that indigenous and non-indigenous workers have a shared interest against capitalism and against the Canadian state. The Mohawk communities involved in the standoff weren't isolated from other workers. They worked mostly in surrounding communities with non-indigenous workers. Many of them were employed as metal workers in Quebec and New York, meaning that you know, a good deal of the Mohawks at the blockades were union members themselves, or at the very least, worked closely with union workers. The indigenous struggle and the workers' struggle are intimately related, and they need to be linked up in order for either of them to truly succeed. The labor leadership could have absolutely organized a show of force in support of the Mohawks, and to be honest, the fact that they didn't is a betrayal. A betrayal which allowed for racist forces to gain the upper hand and help pave the way for the Mohawks' defeat. And as the weeks turned into months, the federal government realized that if they wanted to win this battle, they needed to shut down the protests with all the brunt force they had at their disposal. On August 20th, the federal government sent in 4,500 troops with tanks and helicopters into Oka. To give you a sense of proportion, this is the same number of troops that Canada sent out to the Gulf War which happened like weeks later. The Canadian ruling class literally saw themselves as at war with the Mohawks and they devoted themselves the proper resources. 
Naval ships were stationed in the St. Lawrence River, and fighter jets flew over Ganesatake in a show of force. The army released footage of high-power machine guns as a show of intimidation. The military was clearly prepared for a bloodbath. As troops came in, the Red, the Red Cross followed with stretchers and body bags. Now, on August 27th, the Quebec government announced an official end to any negotiations with the Mohawks and that they would be tearing down the barricade shortly. All journalists and international observers present at the barricades were ordered to leave under threat of persecution. The next day, they destroyed the barricade at Mercier Bridge, and the occupation there was ended quite quickly. But even after the standoff ended at the bridge, the police and military retained a heavy presence in Ganawage, patrolling and harassing the residents to keep them from uh, attempting any other protest. Ganasatake quickly realized that they were due for a similar confrontation. And the next day, on August 28th, a convoy of about 70 cars left to evacuate most of the community's children, women, and elderly. The police stopped the convoy under the guise of searching for weapons. In the meantime, a right-wing radio show publicly broadcast at the location of the convoy and encouraged people to come out and protest. A racist mob quickly surrounded the evacuees and threw stones at them while the police stood aside and watched. One elderly indigenous man named Joe Armstrong was hit in the chest and suffered a heart attack, and he died in the hospital just a few days later. Now on September 1st, troops came in with bulldozers and tanks to push back the barricades. The Mohawks were reduced to holding a single alcohol treatment facility. While there, the military shut down electricity and water on multiple occasions uh, to get them to try and come out. The military went through great lengths to make sure there was as few witnesses as possible. Uh, journalists were openly treated like criminals. They were prohibited from sending film out from the barricades and they were forbidden from receiving uh, supplies. The Canadian Association of Journalists described this as, quote, one of the worst attacks ever on the Canadian public's right to know. Now the, the, the military's assault during the standoff clearly reflects the role of the state under capitalism. The government is not a neutral body. It's not designed to reflect the interests of people generally. It is an organ of class rule. It's a tool used by the capitalists to keep themselves rich and keep everyone else poor. Whenever profits are threatened, the state will turn to any means necessary to protect them. Oko was no. expensive for the ruling class. It cut into business and it was a very big drain on police resources. Even worse, it sent a dangerous message to other indigenous people who are now being inspired uh, to fight in similar ways. So the state had no choice but to clamp down on it. Now, this was further highlighted in the confrontation at uh, uh, Tagagwatha Island. On September 18th, the military landed on a deserted island uh, right outside Ganawage under the guise of searching for weapons. Now the community was outraged to hear of a military occupation happening on their territory, and hundreds of Mohawks rushed to the island to directly demand the military to leave. What resulted was an all-out brawl where soldiers beat down a crowd of unarmed people with batons and the butts of their rifles uh, for having the nerve to not want them on their land. The fight left 75 Mohawk people wounded, including elderly and children. Now, back at Ganasatage, uh, demoralization had begun to set in. And it's on September 26, they voted to end the barricade and escape the facility. When they tried to leave, uh, troops swarmed in to arrest them. 
And in the process, a 15-year-old Mohawk girl was stabbed in the chest with a bayonet, and she was held by police for 22 hours before she was allowed to see a doctor. With this, the standoff had ended. It ended with a partial victory because the golf course expansion had been canceled. However, the fundamental question of land rights remained and remains unanswered. The people of Ganesatake and Ganawake still don't control their land. Now, Oka helped spark off an important turning point in how the Canadian state deals with indigenous issues. For centuries, they bulldozed over native people with, with total disregard, and this in turn alienated indigenous people from the state. They rightfully felt that the Canadian government didn't have their interests in mind. This made indigenous people one of the most militant segments of Canadian society. Indigenous workers and poor have always uh, been some of, the most, uh, some of the quickest to make use of radical tactics like blockades and occupations. While OCO was ended, it was only the beginning of a series of standoffs through the 90s and early 2000s that included uh, you know, these events like Ipperwash, Burt Church, Gustafson Lake, and the 2006 Six Nations occupation. The Canadian state realized that if they continued to ignore indigenous issues completely, uh, then these sorts of standoffs would continue to happen. They were worried about other confrontations developing to the size and scale of Oka. Harold Kala, who is one of the most prominent members of Canada's tiny indigenous bourgeoisie, he said that Oka changed everybody's approach in the non-Aboriginal world. Address these issues or there will be many Okas. Oka said we're all at risk. The state realized that they needed to make indigenous people uh, feel they have a say in government. Both the federal and provisional governments opened a new host of indigenous uh, government bodies and treaty-making processes. These sorts of native bodies existed before Oka, uh, but they were quite weak for the most part. In his book, A Tortured People, uh, the Métis Marxist Howard Adams cites a poll from 1992 uh, which essentially asked native people if they had faith in government bodies like the Assembly of First Nations. One percent answered yes. So, you know, Oka taught the Canadian ruling class how urgently they needed to strengthen and uh, legitimize these bodies. BC began its first treaty claims task force just months after the wave of blockades there died down. Since the 1990s, a growing number of indigenous people have also been given higher posts in government, and the ruling class has encouraged a number of business in uh, initiatives to help the growth of a very small, a small but growing, layer of indigenous capitalists. However, none of this means that indigenous people have more control over the government than they had before. Working class and poor natives, the vast majority of natives, have absolutely no say over these government bodies, and these treaty-making processes almost never rule in favor of First Nations. The Canadian government has not given more control to indigenous people in general. They've merely carved out a certain space in the state for a very thin layer of native elites. This is done to give the impression that the government works in favor of indigenous people and try to draw them away from radical actions such as blockades. Now, Howard Adams explains this quite well in Prison of Grass, and it's a bit of a lengthy quote, but I like it quite a lot, so I'm gonna read it anyways. Uh, he said, native organizations are the hidden hand of the government's bureaucratic oppression. These organizations have become more effective in controlling and suppressing the Indian and Métis masses than any government agency. These native organizations are for the most part opportunistic and elitist, 
serving to keep the native massive oppressed and at the same time giving the governments a liberal democratic image as if they were seriously concerned about the situation of the Indian and Métis people. Couldn't say it better myself, and I know that because I tried. Now, it is clear, looking at the conditions of native people today, that things are not any better than they were before the Oka crisis. Indigenous people still make up the poorest section of Canadian society. First Nations are still routinely denied rights to their land, as we've seen in the cases of the New Stone Camp in BC with Wet'suwet'en and 1492 Land Back Lane in Ontario with the Haudenosaunee. Even in Gunasitake, they are still denied control over the land. As recently as last summer, residents from Gunasitake were protesting against a planned housing development that would once again encroach on their land. The oppression of indigenous people is baked into Canadian capitalism. Colonization was driven by the need for profits. The continued denial of real land rights uh, to native communities is a necessary measure to protect private property. Therefore, there will be nothing resembling reconciliation under capitalism. Now, the greatest lesson uh, that Oka has left behind is the need to take militant action and fight with your own strength with a healthy distrust of the Canadian state. I'm in pretty early. I got through this quicker than my practice runs. Now, on the other hand, a socialist government would have no interest in continuing this oppression. A socialist government uh, would mean an economy that is collectively owned and democratically controlled. Society wouldn't be run according to what makes money for you know, a few assholes, but according to need. Was I not supposed to swear? Huh? All right. No. In some ways, uh, this represents a turn. Uh, in some ways, this actually represents a, uh, represents a bit of a return to the traditional egalitarian forms of society that many First Nations lived in prior to colonization, a sort of return on a higher level with all kind of the modern technology at our disposal. A government like this wouldn't have any interest in subjugating anyone we'd be able to negotiate and solve all outstanding land conflicts and indigenous people would be given control over their own communities. Now, there exists an insoluble tie between the indigenous struggle and the broader labor struggle. Capitalism oppresses all of us and we need to work together to overthrow it. Indigenous people, indigenous workers and indigenous poor are a small minority of the population. We just, we can't overthrow the state uh, without any help. But at the same time, the rest of the working class can't take power away from the capitalists if indigenous people continue to be oppressed. The need for convergence is one of the most important questions for the revolution in Canada, and the potential couldn't be better than it is right now. Sympathy for indigenous issues is at an all-time high, so many people are looking for revolutionary answers to the countless issues indigenous people face. Now, the only way forward is through a revolutionary movement that can unite both the indigenous and the labor struggle under the banner of Marxism and bring any, everyone together in a struggle against capitalism. And I'll end it there. Get ready for International Marxist Radio, the official podcast of the International Marxist Tendency, Marxist.com. A society which can live in harmony with nature 
develop the productive forces without destroying the environment. The institutions of international capital, the markets for example, the IMF. Capital comes to the wall dripping blood and dirt from its every port. Hi, I'm Joe Attard, an activist with the IMT, writer for Marxist.com, and the host of a brand new podcast series, International Marxist Radio IMR. We here at Marxist.com are so excited to bring you this new show, which will offer all the best Marxist news, theory, and analysis that you've come to expect from our articles in audio form. And why are we launching this series now? Simply put, 2022 was a watershed in the history of world politics. Capitalism is in its deepest ever crisis, and the global situation was turned upside down. You have the Ukraine war, the cost of living crisis, insurrectionary movements in one country after another, from Sri Lanka to Iran... The year ended with the congressional coup against Pedro Castillo and the mass protest movement in response by workers and peasants. Simply put, the class struggle is intensifying. The crisis is accelerating. This is a podcast for revolutionaries. We need to equip you with the analysis and ideas necessary to navigate this tumultuous new period and fight to change the world. And on top of that, we know there's a hunger for Marxist theory and education. Our philosophy is the only one capable of really making sense of what's going on in the world. And we're going to be bringing you all sorts of discussion on theoretical topics from economics to history to philosophy to science and more. We already have so many amazing episodes that we can't wait to share with you. Episode 1 is going to land in January 2023, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast at your preferred streaming platform. We're available on all the big ones. And in the meantime, help us spread the word. Get on social media, share this ad, share our teaser with the hashtag IMR, and tell us what kinds of subjects you want us to cover. And above all, this podcast is the voice of the international Marxist tendency, a revolutionary Marxist organization fighting to transform society all over the world. So if you're inspired by the ideas you hear on this podcast, then get in touch via our website, marxist.com, find your local IMT section, and learn more about how you can fight to transform society, overthrow capitalism, and build socialism in our lifetimes. I'm Joe Attard, this is IMR, and we'll see you in 2023. listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, 
and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at Marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.